through uh, a bunch of other sites. So we're just going to wait for a minute till our techie team get things sorted out. And then at the appropriate moment, we're going to... Oh, I've been giving the heads up. So good morning, everybody, and a huge welcome to you. We're going to open up the Bible. Uh, Central, why don't you turn around, wave at the cameras. I think we're streaming today to Ellen, to Inveruri, and to Wes. So woohoo! We love this, don't we? We love these moments where we can connect with our sites. If you're a visitor, we're a multi-site church. You know, seven different sites, a whole bunch of different uh, services throughout uh, the week. And so... We're going to open up the Bible. Uh, we are in a series in 2 Corinthians. So if you want to open up the Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and put your thumb in there, we're going to be in, uh, in and around um, six, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. But hey, so I, I don't know about any of you guys, but recently I've been connecting with old school friends. You know, the wonders of Facebook does that, doesn't it? And I've even had the chance to go out with dinner with a guy I haven't seen in like 30 years. Wow, it was good fun and just kind of connecting and all that. And I've got another dinner set up and, you know, with another friend. And, you know, you end up reminiscing, don't you, with old school chums and all the rest of it. But I was also thinking about my school days. Now, I've got to be honest, peer pressure was a bit of an issue for me. Um, I had some friends that did influence me, and I ended up in some slightly compromising situations as a result. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Um, uh, I remember once um, uh, we decided it was towards the end of term, and a bunch of us got together. We said, well, we're not paying for the tickets for the end of term kind of, I don't know, party slash, uh, up here it would have been a Cayley, but it was in England, so it was like a the dance, you know, end of term, and uh, we were like, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna buy those tickets, they're too expensive. So somebody came up with a great idea that on the Friday night, we would break into the school, sorry teachers, we'd break into the school and just kind of mosey in and be cool and join the party, and so a mate of mine, he did that, we left the window open in one of the toilets, we did that thing, I felt like I was in the Goonies or something, and we climbed in through this window, and then we got in, we were in the party, we, we thought we got away with it, an hour of, you know, getting on the groove on, and then suddenly, I remember the deputy head grabbing us literally by the collar, and be like, you didn't buy the tickets, I earned me a week in what they called isolation, <laughs> now that was <laughs> in my school, that's what they called detention, isolation, I mean, that's, wow, and another time, I remember, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that used to happen, somebody said there was a party happening, somewhere and so I went along with my mates we ended up at this party in a flat third floor flat uh, girls parents were away on holiday you know you can imagine and there was like 10 of us lads rocked up we went into this party I'm sure that none of you have ever done this by the way and uh, and then uh, and then about 20 minutes half an hour into this party you know there's a big knock at the door and the girl she was just like oh no it's my uncle and she's freaking out. We're three stories up. How do we get out? Somebody somewhere said, I've got a great idea. Let's jump. So somebody opens the window, three stories up, and we're like, here we go. Now the good news is this. There was this massive steep bank 
of grass at the back of the flat. So actually, you weren't really jumping three stories. You were probably still jumping 15 to 16 feet. I mean, it was still a good jump into soggy grass. And so here is 10 lads launching themselves out of a window. Right? Unbeknownst to us, there's an old guy downstairs. And he's like watching, lads, it's raining blokes, you know, from upstairs, you know. I want to talk a little bit today about influence. I want to talk about, you know, the connections that we have with people and with things and how they can influence our lives. And actually, at times, we can end up in compromising situations. My friends influence me. There's no doubt about it. I ended up in situations that I probably, probably shouldn't have been in. At times, some of them were really funny. I've just given you a couple of examples. They're the funny ones. I don't think anybody got hurt. Well, the guy downstairs is pretty old. I mean, there was rumors that we gave him a heart attack and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think that actually happened. You know, I often tell people peer pressure never really goes away, it just changes shape. Yeah. Other people's opinions ideas, our society in which we live, social media, and our, our relationship with our, actual, with our own culture does influence us massively. And we don't realize it until we step out of our own cultures and maybe go into another culture. And then we think, oh, actually, wow. We don't see a lot of the things around us that influence us and shape us because we're totally unaware of them. Heard the, I don't know if you've heard the one about the two fish heading on past an older fish. And the older fish says to the younger fish, hey guys, how's the water? And the two fish, younger guys, look at each other and go, what's water? You see, when you're in certain things, you, when you're in culture, you're, you're so imbibed, you don't even recognize that our perspectives are quite different. And so, you know, when we come to experience the love and the forgiveness of Jesus, when you become a Christian and we're filled with His Spirit, we don't leave planet Earth on a spaceship and disappear kind of out there somewhere. No, no, no. We stay where we are and we want to see our nation and our society and our community and our families touched and transformed by the love of Jesus, don't we? Isn't that what we want? But the reality is, we've got to somehow become very discerning around the influence of the things that also in our society and in our culture that seek to change us and shape us as well. And so there's this collision in our lives, isn't there? Wouldn't you agree? We want to be changed into the image of Jesus. That is what a, the, the primary kind of goal of a Christian is, is to become like Jesus, and yet there are other voices and other influences that would seek to hinder that. And they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So we are to stay in this world. And at the same time, we're no longer to be part of it. We're in it, but we're not to be governed by it. You know, all of our prevailing cultures have really great positives, don't they? Because they reflect people. People some have real goodness in them. But the reality of cultures is they also reflect the brokenness in humanity as well. 
the selfish ambition or its hunger for power, materialism. You know, ours is no different, guys. This comes, doesn't it, at us in lots of different ways. Seeks to shape us. <laughs> we, we've been on holiday and just before we were leaving, um, we were in Edinburgh with our uh, niece and, 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 and nephews and hanging out and we, we sat and watched an episode of Love Island. Oh my goodness. Now I'm not, I, I don't want to make a huge comment about it, but this is, these are the things that influence our society and our life. And, and, and actually, they, they begin to shape an entire generation around what does it mean to be in a relationship with another person. It feeds the narcissism in our community and in our society. Difficult, isn't it? We have to become amazing sifters of our culture. What is going to influence me? What is going to shape my life? You know, we, we've just come back from holiday. It was a great holiday. And as we're walking down uh, the road one evening, uh, just near a beach, there was a group of people. And I'm saying all of this because of context, okay? Because of the passage we're about to go delve into. There was a group of um, people, and they were just stood on the street with video screens. And stuff was playing. And they weren't speaking. They were just there. And as we were walking, I was like, what's going on over there? What are they doing? And I was really intrigued. So I went up to them. I said, hey, what is this? What, what? And it turns out this group of people were seeking to challenge the eating habits of the general population. And my conversation with, the, with one particular guy, he said, and he wasn't a Christian, but he understood that we have finite resources in this world. And he was saying the greatest threat to our environment and to actually to humans across the world is the insatiable thirst and hunger of the developed world. And he turned the tide on me. And he said, because we got chatting, and I, and I said, oh, well, I'm a committed Christian. And, and he said, well, would Jesus, this is, this is what he said, he said, would Jesus eat in certain restaurants? Would he sanction the eating of food that had been sacrificed to the gods of materialism and global consumerism? Would he eat meat that caused others to go hungry? Wow. Would, he eat, would, would Jesus eat food that would cause other people to go hungry? This guy's not a Christian, but he's challenging some stuff in our culture, and he's pushing back, and he's saying, if you're a Christian, there's a challenge here, isn't there? Certainly food for thought. Boom, boom. And so, I'm challenged, and the passage that we're going to be looking at is dealing with the, the, the influences in our lives, and the people and the things and the relationships that we have with other people and the partnerships and the length, the sort of sense of connection that we have with our culture and how much of a kind of percentage of influence do we give these things? Because Jesus, don't we? We want to be more like Jesus. We want to be a Jesus people that are in some ways deeply connected to the people around us. And yet also separated from the things of this world. 
things that are not helpful, things that are going to hinder us in our growth and in our, in our, in our becoming like Jesus moment. And so a professor of practical theology that I knew well, he said to me, he said this about t- almost 20 years ago, he said, as we come into a next century, he said this, the church needs to find the great gift of discernment. We need to discern what we can affirm in our cultures and what we must challenge and reject. Because otherwise, we, the people of God, are going to lose our saltiness and our distinctiveness. And this is, the, this is the kind of backdrop to the passage that we're about to read because Paul is concerned for the Corinthian community because they were being submerged into the prevailing culture. And that prevailing culture was pretty immoral. Its primary goals were wealth and pleasure. And so here is a young church trying to be distinctive amongst all of this. And they're struggling to make good choices. And so Paul wants to speak into that and he wants to challenge and he wants the Corinthian church to assess where they're at and assess the kind of connections that they have with their culture. And so it's a challenge for us, isn't it? We want to be a salty church, but we don't want to be weird and totally disconnected because that isn't a great witness either. And for centuries, the church has done two things. It's either withdrawn from society and become this little enclave with its own language and its own habits. And it's like, you know, you become a Christian and you remove yourself completely from society. That's not the Jesus way, is it? Because Jesus came and became part of culture to bring change to culture. And then the flip side of it is this. Often the church has struggled to deal with the mess and the tension of being in the world. So what they've done is they've given up and they've just become like the world. And when that happens, there's no distinction. There's no salt. There's no bite. There's no challenge. I call them submarine Christians. Why? Because you actually can't see the difference. They're fully submerged. Jesus calls the church to be like a boat that is in culture, the water of culture. It's in it, and parts of it are touching it, and actually affirming bits of it, but also there are bits of it that are challenging it, so it stands out of the water, and then also says some stuff about life, and about heaven, and about being different, and being called to be a different kind of people, rather than a hovercraft that has removed itself from culture, and it's become totally separate, and it's disengaged. Does that make sense? And so this is the backdrop. And Paul's concerned that the Corinthians are actually becoming a little bit submerged. And so he wants to challenge them and he loves them and he wants to make them kind of just stop and hit pause for a few minutes and assess where they're at. And so let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I just want to back up a little bit because the gut of what we're going to be talking about is from 14. But in verses um, 11... Uh, and 12 and 13, Paul is beginning to speak to his friends, the Corinthians, and he's speaking as a dad to his kids. Look at what it says. He says, we, in verse 12, we are not withholding our affection from you. He said, we love you, but you are withholding yours from us. He's saying, guys, don't be defensive. This is a relationship, and I love you. As a fair exchange, I speak as to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. So here is 
I think, Uncle Paul speaking into the life of of, of this church. And he's saying, you know me. I've done a few paper rounds. I've seen a bit of the world. Listen, my heart is for you. I have your best interests at heart. And actually, because I've done a few paper rounds and I've seen a few things... I can just see where this is going and I want to just address you. It's a bit like, I don't know how many of us have ever had this moment. I've certainly had it with my own father, but maybe you had it with an uncle or an auntie or a teacher that you love and trusted and they really, you, you, they, you knew that they loved and trusted you, where they have that moment, they say, come, I need to talk to you. Let me sit down with you. Let me look you in the eye and I just want to have this crucial conversation, but it's full of kindness and love because I see where this is going. How many of us have had those moments? I certainly know I've had them. And I've benefited from them. And so here he says to the church in Corinth, I'm like your dad and I see that there's some issues here. So let's address the issues. And then he goes into verse 14. He says this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now it's so important that we read Scripture in context that we understand the backdrop and the things that have been said before you know um in in chapter five halfway through um paul says some incredible truths it's a bit like a, second Corinthians is a bit like a little mountain range it's like there's a truth here and that truth then sheds light on the next passage or two and then there's another big truth and it sheds light on the next couple of passages in chapter five Paul speaks about um, us becoming and being part of new creation he says this so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view so what is he saying he's saying You've become new, and therefore, we, 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 we judge the world, we look at the world, not through our old eyes. But we look at the world now through the perspective of Jesus. We see the world through grace and forgiveness and, and love. We regard no one as we did before. We've got a new perspective. That's what he's saying. And so, we need to assess people's situations and, and, and people differently. And then he goes on and says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. That each and every one of us, he's saying that if you've become a Christian, you've asked Christ into your life, something absolutely brand new has begun in your life. And not only that, 
He's saying all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's saying new creation has begun in you. He's making you into a new creation. And actually you are now carriers of that new creation into the world. A ministry of reconciliation. We become that, sent, that, that kind of incarnate message to the world around us. We're bringing the new. And so he's saying, you know, that, 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 that therefore now we are representing and we are embodying this new culture, this new kingdom culture uh, into this world. With new purpose, with new direction, with new life. It's pretty cool, isn't it? You and I have heaven newness operating in our lives. And we want that newness to push out all the old stuff. And then we become more like Jesus. But the reality is this. How can we be full-on ambassadors for the new if we've got some connections that are still influences in the old, in the old ways of doing things? in the old habits, in the old behaviors, in the old mindsets. And I think all of us in this room and out in the sites, we would recognize, don't we, there is the tension of seeing the new and the old in our own lives. And Paul wants to address the old stuff that's still hanging around by getting the Corinthians to assess what those connections are and how much of an influence they're having in their lives and shaping their lives. Because it seems like they're making some compromises. And when we compromise, we dilute our effectiveness as ambassadors. And I don't know about you, but I want to be an effective Christian in this world. And so I'm preaching to myself this morning. There are things in my life that are still a bit old. And actually, I still run to them sometimes. And I think God is just gently wanting to graciously say, really? When you've got all this new and good stuff I've got for you, why would you want to keep a foot in the old ways? So let's just look at this. So Paul, in verse 14 and 16, then paints this polarized kind of picture and it's very deliberate uh, to make a point doesn't he because he, he, he says stuff like um, you know for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common uh, what fellowship can light have with darkness what harmony is there between Christ and Belial and that's like a, a another word for, 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 for Satan you know He's losing these opposites, isn't he? What does the believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And so he's using these four kind of words. He uses yoked, fellowship, harmony, and agreement. And, and let's be honest, all of those words, they take more than two. They involve common goals. Um, there's a togetherness. There's a sharedness a sh or sharing of weight or sharing of responsibility. There's a, there's a directional thing that comes with that. There's a give and take and a flow and an ebb of life in fellowship, isn't there? It's not just a one-way thing. There's a two-way thing going on there. There's purpose and influence right at the heart of these words. 
And, and I think Paul is possibly using these words to challenge some of the personal relationships, to challenge their possibly some potential business dealings in the community and some of the ethics around those things. And we might find it difficult in our kind of age and stage and culture where to get our heads around this whole thing of the realities of idol worship and, you know, and, and all of that. But, but this stuff had permeated the Corinthian society completely down to the things like what you ate because the reality was the local butcher was probably the pagan priest and so when you went to get your goat, your mutton or your beef, the probably likelihood is that stuff had been sacrificed before an idol first and foremost, you know, and then it's then parted, you know, it's butchered and the people came and got their grub. And so this whole thing about you know, idolatry had permeated the whole of society. When, when people were having social occasions, where was it? It was probably down in the temple courts. You know, that's where people socialized as well. You know, it, it's, it's all, it's kind of systemic or endemic in the culture. And so Paul desperately wants and is seeking to try and get people to disentangle themselves from certain behaviors that are unhelpful. So he says, let's just assess these partnerships for a few minutes. And so he, what does he say? He paints the picture, doesn't he? He says, look at that. There can't be any common ground between righteousness and wickedness. In other words, justice and lawlessness, they're opposite ends of the scale. They have a different kind of seed, if you like, or beginning point. One is inherently good and wants the best, and the other is wicked and tears down and and, and, and hurts. You see, see what he's saying there? He's saying there can't be any common ground really between the bully in this sense, in one end, and, and a cheerleader on another. You know, there's no common ground here. He says there's no harmony between Jesus and Satan. They're at opposite ends of the scale. I mean, he uses that word harmony, and I think the moment I hear harmony, and obviously I'm married to someone who loves to sing and tours brilliant at harmonies, but I think about a choir. You know, the choirs got all these voices and there are people within there harmonizing. They're not fighting against the music and the song. They're adding to it. They're still, um, if you like, under the direction of the conductor. Well, Jesus and Satan are at the opposite ends. One wants to bring and breathe life into humanity. The other wants to restrict, to kill, to steal and destroy. One wants to bring forgiveness and release and freedom from forgiveness of sins and become, release the potential in humanity and the other wants to do the absolute reverse. And so he said, how can they, how can they sit down together? He uses that word fellowship, doesn't he? How can fellowship, sorry, how can light and, light and purity sit down with dark and secrecy? They can't really sit down and have a meal together. You see the images, it's like, these are totally different things with a different source and with a different outcome. What agreement? What agreement? What kind of a contract can the temple of God have with idols? It's like saying, what does truth have in common with a lie? One is marked by the very presence of the creator God. And the other is a man-made substitute. The 
often fans into flame sinful desire. You see what Paul's doing here? He's deliberately kind of, it's like an exaggerated moment. And he says, guys, there, there is always a source and a destination. So I want to challenge you as to where you are with all of this. And actually, when he says, what agreement? I wonder if the Corinthians then, it's almost like saying, what kind of agreements do you have with your temple structure? I think if Paul would be saying to us today, what agreements, what contract, what influence, what kind of a relationship do you have with the temples of our age? Now, you know, a bunch of us are going to be going to Sri Lanka in August. And I've been out to Sri Lanka on a number of occasions and hanging out with Leslie and Shanti, our mission partners. And I grew up in India, which is a Hindu culture in many ways. And you see idol worship and you see that stuff. It's really in your face. It's prevalent. And in the meetings, you know, we've often prayed for people. And I've seen demonic activity. I've watched people being set free from stuff like that. And we see the idol stuff and we see the danger of it in a, and, and the and the collision of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness is really like obvious. But when Leslie and Shanti come to this country, they say it's the same. It's the same because they see the darkness holding people in through the materialism and the narcissism that's in our society, but we don't see that. We just think it's ah, oh, it's all right. But it's not. And so they come and they see all of this and they, they go, gosh, the developed world's gods are materialism and self-centeredness. And they're holding you captive. Isn't that interesting? And so maybe Paul would say to us today, hey, what kind of agreements do you have? Agreements with the stuff that feeds the self, that's feeding the pleasure areas What's dragging us off? What's pulling us away from goodness and godliness and kindness and chastity maybe and all of that kind of stuff? Remember, the con Paul's like a dad speaking to his kids. This is where it's going, guys. I don't want you to end up in partnerships that are going to pull you away. And so then he says then, and he says, don't be yoked. He says, don't be yoked. Don't enter into partnerships that have different goals, that have different values. And he talks about it in terms of believers and unbelievers. Now, I know, and I, and I don't want to skip anything here. I know that this is a particular passage that often is used and often quoted when it talks about marriage. But let's just, I just want us to think pragmatically, maybe for a few minutes. Paul has not mentioned anything about marriage in the in the letter the second le this this particular letter to the Corinthians so far he's not mentioned anything about marriage so far so can you actually say that this is a passage this particular sentence is about marriage to be honest with you i'm not sure but i know what he is doing he is challenging the Corinthians because in the past and actually in the, in the time when he's writing, is that they have veered off because they have joined themselves to someone or a leader or a group that has actually kind of corrupted an, uh, their spirituality. 
And so I think the emphasis and the overriding posture of this letter is about, you know, is about leadership and about spiritual maturity and discernment and all of those things. But I do think the principle could be applied also to our relationships and actually into marriage as well. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks a good deal about marriage. He talks about partnerships. And uh, he, he basically, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, his perspective on this is this. Uh, and the reason why he addresses it is because uh, at that time there, there was a number of people acting immorally. So the church had asked him some questions and so he came back and he said, let's just talk about uh, the, the morality and let's talk about relationships a little bit. But Paul's perspective is this. Um, his first and foremost is this. Uh, marriage is not the goal. He says, first and foremost, serving Jesus and loving Jesus is the goal. You see, society makes a huge deal about relationships being the be-all and end-all. And so, first of all, Paul's perspective on this is, life is short, so let's give everything to God, and let's serve Him with everything, because we've got 60 or 90 or 80 years to serve Him, but we're going to spend eternity with Him. And then he goes on to say, though, he does say, which is fair dues, he says, also... But if you're burning with passion, because we are, you know, we're, we're people, we're emotional, we're sexual. He said, if you're burning with passion, then just get married. <laughs> so that's fine. And then he says, and then he speaks to, to some folks, because he said, you know, some people who, who, who've got married, maybe one of the spouses has become a Christian. And so suddenly you've got this coexistence of believer and unbeliever in a household. And he's saying, well, so there's some questions around that. And, he's, and, and so they're saying, well, if you've become a Christian, then your spouse, who's not a Christian, should get an even better spouse. In other words, that spouse should become even more patient, more kind, more generous, more loving, more forgiving. He says, it's not an excuse to leave that partner. He says, no, 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 no. You now are called to love that, 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 that unbelieving partner. Big time. And so if you, you know, and I recognize across our church, you know, there are lots of us that may, you know, that, that, of you that have a spouse that's, you know, you, you, maybe you got married together, you weren't Christians, and maybe one of you has become a Christian. Well, if you're the Christian, then I think Paul in 1 Corinthians would say, hey, you're called now to love that, your spouse with everything. That doesn't change. But then it also says, and the question was about a widow, you know, if, if a widow's lost her husband, is she free to marry again? He says, of course she is. But it, there's this little, little line that simply says, but marry in the Lord. What's he getting at? He's basically saying that biblical wisdom would suggest this. If you're looking for a spouse, you're going to get married. Then marry someone who loves Jesus the way that you do. You know, Paul's a pastor. And Paul's been around people's lives. And they've probably sat amongst couples that have had real tensions. 
And he's saying, I, I don't want you to have to experience some of those tensions. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, he lands on saying, do you know what? It's better not to get married. Because again, life is short. And we want to love the world. And we want to see as many people come to Jesus. So he would say to us today, do you know what? Western society makes such a big deal about being married and in a relationship. He would probably say to us, guys, it's better that you're single and giving everything to Jesus. And I think sometimes we in the church, we, what we've done is we've imbibed some of our culture. And, and we've said, if you're not married, then actually you, in some way you're not, I don't know, you're not functioning right or you're, you're not a complete person. That is rubbish. Paul would say the opposite, I think. And so he calls the church to assess their partnerships. And he's saying, just evaluate. Evaluate. And I'm going to land now because we're um, running out of time. But I hope, guys, you hear Paul's gracious, loving heart towards this community. And I, and I, and I, and, and I, and I hope it com- it's conveyed as well to you guys here. And then he lands this passage on two things. He says, you know, guys, there is so much more. Look at the promises that God has. Look at this. He says, you know, for, I am, uh, for we are the temple of the living God. Um, as God has said, I will be with them. I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Um, and then he goes on to say in verse 18, and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He says, guys, I want you to live in this world, but not be of it. And when you do that, God's presence will be with you. And he paints this lovely picture and he lifts some promises of the Old Testament. But I love that idea that here is the God who comes and walks with his people. It's like the imagery that comes back to me is, is one of the Garden of Eden. That God walks with his people. You know, it's like a dad it says there, we become his children. It's like a dad holding hands with his kids. He says, guys, we have a promise that God is with us. And so then he lands with this invitation to act and to choose, doesn't he? He says that since we have these promises, let us purify our lives. And so therefore, in the light of culture, in the light of some of the things there are, you know, could be detrimental to how we uh, grow in God. Let's assess those partnerships and what they mean and the influences to us. And let's activate choice. And maybe for some of us this morning here or at the sites, this, some of this stuff has maybe kind of ruffled feathers or challenged us a little bit. But Paul's heart for that community, and I think coming through to our church, is that he wants us to be unbelievable ambassadors. He wants us to be effective Christians. He wants us to love the world, but also to do that effectively. There are some things that we need to step back from. And so why don't we stand and uh, let's pray this morning.